0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. The Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. From the New Testament, John 10:7 through21. Therefore, Jesus said again, "Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise
1: to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Before we pray, just to address the elephant in the room, I have not joined the Marines, <laughs> nor have I begun to play soccer. Nor have I been reading any men's fashion magazines. I don't know what happened. Let us pray. Lord, I like it that we get to be church together. Sheep. Summoned by a watchful, accompanying, supplying, sovereign shepherd. That we, a lot of times, hear your voice and make our way back to you. I'm encouraged, oddly, by the passage that Karis just read to hear that the response to hearing you talk was if that's true, he's either who he says or a raving lunatic. Oh, Lord, please do not let anyone here fail to take you that seriously. Let us hear the voice of the shepherd summoning, beckoning, chasing after, and let us surrender to his search. O Lord, search for us, for we have strayed like lost sheep. Will you visit us this morning in ways that we could not have accounted for on our own or anticipated with our own puny imaginations? Will you visit us healingly and with restoration of soul? We invite you in the name of Christ. Now come. Amen. Aziz Ansari, also known as Tom Haverford, said in an interview i saw one time i read a lot on the internet i feel like i'm on like page 1 million in the world's worst book i feel like i'm on like page 1 million of the world's worst book most of us are reading right alongside him and could nod in emphatic agreement And so today, we're starting something new here at the beginning of this 2019, a different kind of sermon series, one such as we haven't tried before. It's not that revolutionary or anything. But I wanted to talk to you about first what we're going to do or what we're going to hope to do and what I hope you'll participate in us, with us, in doing. We're going to try to do something like that game that people play called Desert Island. If you were stranded on a desert island and you had only three books that you could carry with you or only three movies that you could carry with you, which would they be? And this could send some of you into sort of a, a paralysis of thought. But the point of the game is to say they're there are surely those, those films and those books that stand out to you. That have nourished you in some way. And that if you only had those, you could, you could somehow get something out of it. You could somehow be okay for a good long while. If all you had to, with you was to watch Augustus McCray and Woodrow F. Call... And Lonesome Dove making their way to Montana for all them lawyers and bankers get to it well, then you could watch Lonesome Dove over and over again, and you could you could find yourself moving towards wholeness. Well, there are passages in the Bible that that there are small passages in a big book, but if you knew these passages, if you knew them inside and out like you could quote some of your favorite movies or your favorite Taylor Swift lyrics, if you could recite them and call them to mind like you could brilliant scenes from Raising Arizona, then you would have a lot of the Bible condensed into something very memorable and nutrient-rich so that you could carry it around with you. And so what we're going to do for these next, uh, I don't know, seven or eight weeks before Lent begins, is we're going to pick great passages. I'm using air quotes. Passages that, that indicate in a special way something that the Bible's about. Passages that, that, with a humble receptivity, have a special kind of vitality to them. That, that connect us to, in a way, a lot of what the Bible is all about. Passages that have nourished in exceptional ways, the saints throughout the years, and maybe even you. I've asked folks what their favorite passages were. I've asked folks, what what do you think if you were trying to have people learn the Bible and you only had a few passages to do it, which ones would you think they needed to know? And so we're going to look at passages like that. And what I'm hoping is going to happen, if you saw the Rock Creek response or listened to it on Friday, what I'm going to do each week or what we're going to do each week is tell you on Friday what the passage for Sunday is going to be. And our hope is that you might be willing to give some loitering attention Hang out in the neighborhood of that small passage for the next seven days, from Friday to Friday. So you got two days before the sermon of it. And then after the sermon, you got five days, if I'm doing my math right, it's complicated. Where you're going to be just ruminating on the same thing. One, this might help you with guilt alleviation if you're not so good at keeping up with your Bible reading plan. You thought, I'm going to read the Bible this year, and then you're like five days in, you're like, I'm already like 42 chapters behind. Well, I hope you'll do that too if you want. But little passages that you can read over and over throughout the week. You might find yourself, as you're reading them, getting hung up on one word, one phrase, one idea. That idea might turn into prayer. That idea might turn into something that, that that you gnaw on for a while, that you noodle over for some good bit. And that would be good and right. I'm hoping for you to have something that you can carry with you throughout your life and throughout the week. So we're going to try this, and hopefully it will de- become a habit for you, something that will nourish you in a, in a special kind of way. Now, some of you know that there is a certain kind of anxiety that you get if you don't have certain things with you when you leave the house. I would imagine for the lion share of people in here, if you should leave the house and get all the way to work 30 minutes away and discover that you don't have your phone, you would need, immediately need to call your therapist. You would find your anxiety rising, you'd find your your underarms soaked with sweat, you'd, you'd be having palpitations inexplicable, you'd feel ill at ease because, you know, with your your phone, you're impervious to death. The death of boredom or the death of violent collisions. You can keep track of your children. If you know where your children are, then nothing can happen to them if you know where they are. Mm -hmm. If you can get in touch with everyone all the time and everyone can get in touch with you all the time, then you're safe. And it feels terrible not to have your phone. Well, we need them. That's the brilliance of the phone where our lives are latched with them. It might be leaving the house without cash or without your wallet or without some medication that you need, and just the thought of not having it destroys your confidence. It makes you unable to enter into your world. What I'm hoping to do in these times where we are watching the Internet, reading the Internet, and are on like page one million of the world's worst book, but yet can't put it down. That we might have something to leave the house with each morning. Some bit that isn't going to happen out in the world, that's going to reorient us, that's going to flick on a switch that got turned off overnight, or that gets turned off 87 times during the day, that has to get flicked back on. That awakens us to the world in which we live. It awakens us to realities that we're not normally cognizant of, that we don't normally keep in our perception. Something that gives us confidence. I picked Psalm 23 for the first passage of this because, well, one, you all know it. It's very widely known and read and memorized. If you hang out in the Bible, you hang out at churches, you hang out at cemeteries. It's a very famous psalm and encapsulates a great deal about life on earth with God as our king. Dallas Willard, who has influenced me a lot, made a habit with this particular passage. He made a habit with this particular passage of saying, I'm not going to get out of bed in the morning until I've scrolled through. He didn't say scroll because he doesn't use computers lots, I don't think. Until I've worked over in my mind Psalm 23. I recite it to myself. I pray it. I, I just walk through it. I don't get out of bed until I'm reoriented to the fact to the facts of my existence, the ones that don't occur to me when I wake up, that I'm a shepherded person, which means that I have a sovereign someone to to supply for me, a sovereign someone to watch over me, a sovereign someone to accompany me. And it helps him to sort of settle into his sheepness, to open up in a humble receptivity to the fact that today as he goes out into the world with violent forces and trivialities and terrors, with strains and stresses and joys, that he enters into that world humbly, openly, receiving another life from the one who's always with him. That he doesn't have to protect himself. He doesn't have to fend for himself. He doesn't have to be led along by his own nose. He has a certain sovereign someone. And that gives him confidence. It's given me confidence. I want it to give you confidence. So that's what we're going to do. And an image I would love for you to have as we think about why are we doing this again? Well, I want you to have confidence. Confidence. More confident when you leave the house than if you've got your cell phone with you. And if you've got a pocket full of cash and, and all your credit cards and your wallet, I want you to have this sense that you have a way to tend to all the things that you're going to encounter. You've been on an airplane. You know at the beginning in those talks that no one pays attention to and wishes would get over with. And the person doing it would wish they didn't have to do it. But they tell you, Right? An analogy that's surely been used in four or five hundred million sermons across the planet throughout the time that people have been flying. That if the cabin pressure should drop, then you put the oxygen mask on yourself first, hero. Don't try to save the people around you when you can't breathe. Science says without breathing you die. You can't help no one if you ain't got no breath. That's how they say it in the science books. And so you put that oxygen mask on yourself first so that in an emergency in dire circumstance you're going to be a benefit to others and to yourself. And so I would love for you to think about these passages and some sort of loitering with them or or letting them sit on your tongue like a lozenge, like a Starlight mint that you just let sit there and savor, that gets to be part of you. It's like putting on an oxygen mask. So you're breathing deeply the words that made the world, the words that hold up the world, the words that God Himself has said, You can't live without these. You think you just need bread, you need words from the heavens. To sustain you. And I've been teaching my people that throughout the ages. So this is a kind of oxygen mask. That you get to oxygenate your own soul. Your own body. With reality. And it helps you to be able therefore. To fulfill your calling in the world. You then have something to offer. You then have grace that you've breathed in deeply. That you've you've chowed down on like a hearty breakfast of pancakes and eggs and sausages and coffee and juice and now you're revitalized to go out and bear witness to realities that other people aren't so sure of themselves to help be the voice of the one who calls and his sheep always hear that voice that we get to be under shepherds ourselves, that we get to demonstrate that we've been chased after with loving kindness and we can show it we've been accompanied in our fears and we can accompany we've been watched over and we can watch over we can share the hope that we have if we're careful to keep this oxygen in front of us and it's the kind of thing I think if you start to do this and a lot of you I don't want to presume that you don't already do this a lot of you already do You'll realize throughout your day, if you're trying to meditate on these things, you'll realize how many times a day, for instance, how many times a day do you get bored, or in the middle of hard things, do you instinctively, in a moment, you pick up your phone, you scroll through something that's diversionary. I read some study recently, it's very scientific, I'm going to have remembered it perfectly, the average, uh, the average uh, human on the planet Earth, see, you can already tell this is exact, exact <laughs> reads four gazillion news stories a year. I think that's exactly what, how they put it. Man, throughout the day, you're sitting in the grocery store, you're sitting in your car at a red light, you just get out of a meeting that's been long and tense, and so you have to read about Justin Bieber and Haley Baldwin. Is that something? Or Steph Curry and LeBron James? It is a fact. Who can read the Bible? There's Nancy Pelosi and new dancing House of Representative members and outlandish things. Donald Trump said an outlandish thing. First time we have to know and you fill your head with these I mentioned on Friday reading somewhere, these refined sugars you have an endless appetite for it but none of it sticks to your ribs it's all empty calories you don't remember anything you read it's not shaping you in any helpful way so we're trying to give you something to think when you get bored when you get scared What can you call to mind? What can you bring up in your memory? When you're cold at heart and you need help in praying, what can break open the frozen tundra of your heart like a pickaxe and cause the green to show again? That's what I'm hoping will happen as you come to these passages As you meditate on them daily, as you read them over and over again, as you turn them into prayers, as you just by hanging out with them, you'll find yourself probably memorizing them. Some of you need to set out to memorize them. You'll be surprised. You'll be glad. That's the introduction. But it's not indicative of the length of the rest of the things, so far as anybody might be able to tell right now. We'll share this, though. So that is the introduction. We won't spend a lot of time actually talking so much about Psalm 23 today because the introduction of what we're trying to do is long. It's it's an idea such as what God has told the Israelites when they're traipsing through the desert, through their own valley of the shadow of death, do they wander through a vast and dreadful desert. That's where some of you live right now arid conditions bereft of comfort vast and dreadful in the vast and dreadful desert the Israelites knew they had to count on God every single minute they got weary of that they got frustrated with that they misinterpreted reality with that he hates us surely they thought but there was less likely for them to forget God when in the morning there were going to be scrambled eggs on the ground. I mean, manna. And at night, there was going to be quail, steaks of quail. Meat was going to come at night, and bread in the morning. These things were going to be supplied. The worry for God, for his people, is what was going to happen when they weren't in a vast and dreadful desert anymore. Amnesia. And so he says... Let these words of mine, let these commands of mine, let your memory, let it be tattooed on your heart. Let these things be impressed on you and impress them on your children. Write them on walls and stuff. Write them on your, you know, inside of your biceps with Greek letters and Hebrew characters. So that you can remember, so you do not let the actions of God slip from your mind. If you were keeping in your heads the 23rd Psalm. And you just started out and said, the Lord is my shepherd. I think of Dick Griffith, who's Hinkle's own version of the world's most interesting man. He doesn't always drink beer, but when he does, he prefers dos equis. And Dick was taking a class from Señor Shaw, learning Espanol, and he was setting to memory, I guess Sandy had him do this in the class, Psalm 23. El Señor es mi pastor. Except Dick's voice is deeper and more gravelly and more awesome. El Señor es mi pastor. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. It's a reorienting fact about having a good king who's watchful over everything all the time. Most of us spend our days meditating on our deficits, our wants, what might happen to us in the valley of the shadow of death, what might happen to us when we are not led, what might happen to those we love, We think about what we've not got. And the psalmist having been an actual shepherd and then a shepherd as a king and in the ancient Near East shepherds, that's the word that gets applied to kings all the time. That kings are shepherds and they're watching over their whole dominion, which is their flock And good kings make sure that their flock is protected and supplied for. And watched over vigilantly. They do not live for themselves. And Ezekiel, God is furious at the kings of Israel. Because they got rich. And they got fat. And they got negligent. And they got lazy. And they fed themselves. And they didn't do jack squat for their flock. God's flock. They didn't chase after the injured. They didn't bind up those who had broken things. They didn't go after the strays. They didn't fight off intruders. So his flock was scattered and fed to the wolves. So he says, I myself have to come. I myself will come and shepherd my flock. This is an image that's meant to tell you no matter how many things you think you might need, the thing you need more than anything is to believe that you are shepherded. That you have someone who's really watching your life. You know, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, a lot of people in here are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, maybe literal death, but every sadness, says Walt Wanger, and every sadness has its root in death. Why does a mother cry at a wedding when her daughter's getting married? Even if her daughter is not marrying an imbecile, which sometimes happens. Her daughter's marrying a wonderful man. She thinks he's great for her daughter. And why does a mother cry like she's at a funeral? Because in a way, she is at a funeral. Though something good's happening, something bad is happening, something's being lost. It's a death to her. The season is going away. All our sadnesses have to do with the valley of the shadow of death. And we wonder sometimes as we carry these things around, we think, is somebody watching? You feel cataclysmic loss. Someone precious to you is in deep distress. Someone dies. And you have this devastation inside. And people outside are chatting away. They're watching Netflix and eating snow cones. They're going to football games and they're going shopping at Dillard's or something, and life continues and you're decimated and you want to scream out, Stop it! What's happening? Why is the world not stopped? It's stop from me. Is anybody watching? And the psalmist says, I have a shepherd. I'm watched over. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. And that's the need I have. That's why I shall not be in want. That's why I get my soul restored. That's why I can lie down in green pastures. That's why I can be led to still waters when I ache with the thirst of loss. I get something from you. I know to look for something from you. I know to be replenished and led for your own namesake and your own reputation something for me you're wronged in some way there's another kind of death oh, I've seen it lots of times you have too somebody close to you betrays you in some profound way and it's like being fouled in a game you know like in soccer somebody gets fouled and then like the guy flips up in the air and turns around six times and t- cuts off his leg to look like something really bad happened They do that in every sport. Flopping, I call it. And you sometimes get fouled so badly and you're just looking around like, did the official not see this? Someone needs to cry foul. There needs to be some celestial whistle. They need to be ejected from the game. And you're walking around and someone has injured you so badly and there's no one to call foul. They're still going on vacations and the Gulf of Mexico. They're still having barbecue grill outs at their house with their big green egg. And you are devastated. And you're wondering, is anybody watching? And the psalmist would say, I have a shepherd who's watching, who's tracking me down with goodness and mercy, who can put back together this broken vase of my life and restore my soul so I know have learned to look for him not to meditate on what I need not to meditate on what I lack not to meditate on all the death but to meditate on the one who shepherds me through the lack through the need through the death Virginia Baird I've heard I've said this before Virginia Baird who taught me so much about the faith she died on December the 20th I mean, I'm sorry, her birthday was December the 20th. And it just popped up on my phone back in December. and made me think of her again. And I saw her copy last night of A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 with all her notes in it. And I thought this a good way to close as a reminder for us. Because if you've got this idea of you having a sovereign shepherd who's watchful, who's supplying, who's accompanying, then you can come to believe like she did that there are only two kinds of people in the world who deal with sheep. Now, of course, you have to enter into your own sheepness. You have to settle into your own sheepness. The only two kinds of people deal with sheep, butchers and shepherds, you'd say. And our Lord ain't no butcher. At Christmas this year, we had a puppy happen to us. He's awesome. Hear that, everybody? He's awesome. My friend said, it's the gift that keeps on taking. <laughs> we were talking to the breeder about this puppy trying to, to figure out how to do some remedial instruction and, and that sort of thing. And he said, you know, this, he's just trying to figure out his place in the pack. You know, he's just like a, like a young person. You know, a young person goes to work and they think, well, they should be the CEO of the company, they know everything. He thinks he should be the CEO of your house. And at some point they've got to learn. Well maybe you can't be the CEO. Maybe you're just going to have to be an accountant. Or a, you can work in sales. Or R&D. Or marketing. Or something like that. Not everybody can be the president. But when they find their place. They can settle into it. And that's what you're helping him do. You have to help him to find his place. So he can settle into it. And. And. When we find our place as sheep with a shepherd, not a butcher, we can realize, even when we fouled up very embarrassingly, even when we know things about ourselves that make us think and make us want to clobber ourselves and butcher ourselves and think, surely God would be disgusted with this. We remember Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd, and I get slaughtered like a sheep. So that when I call my sheep from this pen and others, they all come to me. The picture in Revelation is of a multitude that makes New Year's Eve in Times Square look like a a country parade through Hinkle. A multitude no one can count, full of every tribe and tongue people tall and short with varying levels of hair, speaking all kinds of languages and from all sorts of countries on God's good earth. And they can't get over this lamb at the center. And they say salvation belongs to this one who should have butchered us. But he refused it. He went himself to the butcher so that we could be received as his precious lambs carried close to his heart. Clean, received, accepted. Put that in your pocket. Carry these things with you each day to work and to play, to difficult things. Settle into the fact that you're a sheep. But you're not led along by your own nose. You have a sovereign king who supplies and watches, who accompanies So put that oxygen mask on over and over again and breathe it in deep so that you can settle into this calling of being his flock for this world. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, a shepherd, furious over those who would do your sheep peril, intent on doing us good, And so we come to you and we cry out so that you might clean us again. We cry out our confession. Will you hear us as we, with one voice, recite from page three in our bulletins? Lord, we cry to you to heal our wounds. We call to you in distress and plead for your salvation. We have sinned against your law and failed to do your will. We confess that we've disobeyed your holy word. We pray, purge our lives of selfishness and our hearts of bitterness. Lead us back in righteousness. Save us through Jesus Christ. Amen. Take a moment to silently confess it.